This is new classical tracks from listener-supported American public media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for this show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Centennial anniversaries are kind of funny things. I mean, how do you really mark them and do something interesting and different? Pianist Laura Downs had an idea to reimagine George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Its centennial celebration is February 12, 2024. So she commissioned a young Puerto Rican composer to put in the sounds of the 21st century, the melting pot that is who we are today. What does that sound like? Well, it might sound different depending on where it's performed. You'll find out more about that as we hear about this reimagined version of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Well, you commissioned this radical new arrangement of this iconic work. Now, why did you want to do that? Why did you want to see this piece be reimagined? I think anniversaries are interesting. I think they are significant. Um, I think we don't always do them so well in classical music. You know, I think sometimes we just play a piece to death for a year and then everyone's sick of it. And it's hard to get sick of Rhapsody in Blue. I think that's a testament to its staying power. You know, it, it really is such a powerful piece and still so, so fresh. But, you know, with this anniversary coming up, I was getting lots of calls to play the piece. And that made me think about the meaning of this 100-year anniversary and kind of what I wanted, how I wanted to feel about it, what I wanted to do with it. And I guess just about a year a year before that, I had worked with this composer, Edmar Colon, at the Boston Pops. We had been both um, involved with a program that was centered on the music of Ellington and Strayhorn. And Edmar had done this incredible arrangement of Ellington's Caravan, where he had taken that piece back to its roots, which lie in Puerto Rico, um, which is where Edmar is from, and just expanded it with all of this Afro-Caribbean percussion, really just taking it back to its roots, or expanding, I guess, really amplifying its origins. And I thought, well, that, you know, that to me is really interesting because I think the Rhapsody for me has always been um, very emblematic of this kind of like, well, uh, like a, a birthplace of many things. You know, it's this place where Gershwin is finding all of these things that are new and trying something new. And the piece was written as an experiment in modern music. Um, and so I was thinking really about Gershwin's definition, his description of the piece, which I've always loved so much, where he calls it the musical kaleidoscope of America. And he talks about, you know, celebrating the melting pot. And so, you know, what was the melting pot in 1924? And what is the melting pot today? And, you know, where are the origins of that piece? And where have they, what have they grown to now? So anyway, I, I was just thinking about, well, you know, what, how would America sound now to George Gershwin, I guess, is the question. And so really the first thing I did was to pick up the phone and call Edmar because I just had had that sound in my mind of what he had done with the Ellington. And I thought, that's what we need to do. We need to explore both the, the past and the present and the future of this piece all in one. 
Before we dive too much into the new work, let's set the scene for the original work for people who may just be discovering it, which I always find that to be amazing, right? To think about people just discovering a piece that we've known for so long. Tell me a little bit about how this piece of music reflected the America at the time, which was shortly after World War I. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was a time of so much shift in America. It was a time of migration, right? So you had the great migration, so many African-Americans coming up from the South and settling in cities like New York City. You had, uh, you had had a steady stream of immigration from Europe until the early 20s. And, and the speed of life was changing so much just because of industrialization and, tra- you know, the p- possibilities for travel. So I always think of that time in the early 1920s as this time when people were encountering each other for the first time in really significant ways um, and, you know, hearing each other, listening to each other. So I think that Gershwin's toolbox was made up of so many things. And, you know, of course, he himself was the son of immigrants. So he's a first generation American. His roots were in the Yiddish theater in vaudeville. But then here comes this sound this new thing called jazz and it's everywhere in his ears and he was seeking it out and trying to learn this new language. At the same time, also, he's, you know, traveling to Paris to try to study classical music with Maurice Ravel. I mean, he was really this very curious, very American composer. And I think when he had the opportunity to write this piece, which again was commissioned for this concert called An Experiment in Modern Music, was exactly the idea of blending these influences pulling jazz and European classical traditions together. I mean, he was so well positioned to do it. And I just, I feel like this score is just saturated with all of these little bits and pieces of things that he's trying to assimilate and um, blend into a new, very American language. Your mission with this reimagined work is to celebrate the waves upon waves of new arrivals to this country over the past century. And this mission is also very personal for you. Will you tell us that story? Yeah, I didn't know that much about 1924 um, when I started studying the history that lies between now and then. I learned a lot about 1924. And one of the things that I learned was that when Gershwin wrote this piece, which was at the beginning of the year, It was first premiered in February. So he started writing it very quickly in January of that year. And in May of that year, there was new legislation passed called the Johnson-Reed Act, which really shut down immigration from many parts of the world, shut down immigration from Asia completely, from Eastern and Southern Europe. And there was very dangerous and restrictive and what's the word I'm looking for? Very, I mean, it was a very exclusionary mission behind, behind that, that new legislation, really overtly, you know, to preserve one specific kind of American um, blood, really. So Gershwin's writing this piece in these times when there's so much progress, right, that we think of the 1920s as this time of freedom and liberation, and they've just gotten through a global pandemic and everybody's dancing the Charleston and, you know, it's, it's this, this boom time. But at the same time, against all that progress was this pushback and this urge to really contain the country in, into what it had been, I suppose. So I, I think of him writing this piece in those times with that, all of that in his mind and his heart at the same time. And I think that his overt celebration of the melting pot of the musical kaleidoscope of America is very meaningful. It's really him speaking out not only for himself, for his own origins, but for, you know, again, the music of Black Americans and all of the music that he's experiencing. It's just made me think so much about 
the role of musicians throughout history where we do listen and we do take in new things and we kind of welcome new things and we grow new things. And and I think that sometimes we do that in in times that are very much discouraging the possibility of doing that. Well, your grandparents migrated from Jamaica to Harlem around that time. Tell us that story and how that might impact you personally as you play this new reimagined work. Right, right, right. So so all of this legislation, um, which was really designed to keep everybody, you know, very white and Christian in America. Um, if you were coming from Great Britain, the quotas were very generous because there was an assumption of who you were if you were coming from Great Britain. But I think they kind of forgot about the British West Indies, right? So there are all these Caribbean islands that were still British colonies. And so there was this huge wave of immigration from those islands, I think specifically to New York City at that time. And I'd always known that. I always known that in the in the mid-1920s, there was a, a large wave of immigration from the West Indies. And I'd known that my grandparents came somewhere around that time, but I hadn't really understood the backstory there. And then when I did, when I did learn that, and I went on um, Ancestry.com and looked up you know, the, my, my family's records, and I saw that my grandfather and yeah, my grandfather had come from Jamaica to Harlem in 1924, which really was a very much a goosebumps moment because, you know, again, I just never understood the implications of how my family started here. That's amazing. The world premiere of this new work took place in October in San Francisco. It was you at the piano in the San Francisco Conservatory of Music Orchestra and Edwin Altwater conducting. And that's, is that what we're hearing on this recording, that performance? That's the recording, yes. Yeah. Why was it so important to have this young group of forward-thinking musicians premiere this work? You know, I think that the Rhapsody is so well-known to all of us, to music lovers, to musicians, to people who fly United Airlines, right? It's just like kind of this soundtrack. And as much as I love the idea and the future of playing this new version with the great American orchestras and, and orchestras around the world, for me, it was very significant to have the first performance come from young people who, as you said, you know, don't maybe have the um, embedded knowledge that we have or any assumptions about this piece or where it sits in the American canon. So to have their first experience with this work be this contemporary version that is really reflecting so much of their lived experience. You know, this this piece is built to be site-specific. So when we played it in San Francisco, one of the components was a traditional, an ensemble of traditional Chinese instruments, because that immigration is so essential to uh, California, to the Bay Area. quite a few Asian students involved in the orchestra. And I just, I remember the dress rehearsal for this piece being such an emotional moment. It was the dress, I say the dress because that was the first time that all of these, all of the components came together. We had the Chinese musicians, we had a big battery of Afro-Caribbean percussionists, and just seeing the faces of everybody on the stage, hearing these sounds that, you know, reflect their own lineage as well, of course, as these tunes that we love so much. Um, but it just, it puts a different lens 
on what this music means. And it was just truly kind of overwhelming. I see, I look at the pictures from the dress rehearsal and I, I had tears because it was just really such a beautiful moment of, again, bringing the past just so firmly into today. Tell me a little bit more about the site-specific component of this work. What are your hopes for that? And has it, or, has it happened in any way yet? Or are there plans for that experience to occur? Yeah, you know, I think America is so many different things, right? We have so many different histories and traditions, and we're such a huge country. And so our music sounds different depending on where we are. So yes, you know, now we're in the process of scheduling performances of this piece in many different um states, many different cities. And so the idea is that, you know, in San Francisco, again, we were reflecting a local tradition here. Um, if we take the piece to Texas, it's a very different thing. And we, we um, amplify local traditions there. Uh, New York, we're planning a performance in New York in the summertime. And it's very interesting. I mean, it's really wonderful to trace back and find out you know, place by place. Well, what are what are the local histories here, and what did music sound like in this city 100 years ago? What does it sound like now? And you know, just tracing the lineage and then bringing it into this piece again into this musical kaleidoscope. So, in the score, is it just like improvise here, or how do how do these how do these different cultures work their way into this piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah, notation was interesting. One of the things I've always thought about the Rhapsody, about Gershwin's original, which, you know, it's important to for me to clarify, I think, that Gershwin's original composition was just for piano. And the orchestration that we think of was done by Ferdi Grofay um, in time for the premiere. But he was just, he was arranging Gershwin's piano score for the Paul Whiteman band. And then over the next years, Grofay did many different orchestrations, but Gershwin never orchestrated the piece. And whenever I play the piece, I always think about the challenge that we always have as musicians to notate sort of different musical languages in in the in the writing that we know. You know, so he's taking all these rhythms that are coming from the jazz world, from Latin music, and he's notating them as best he can within the within the context of you know a, a through written score that's composed in a European classical style. So when we, when it came to these expansions of various sections, it was super interesting because we had, we had for example, a ta drum. Bongo, conga. All of these instruments with musicians who who read or interpret music, you know, with very different notation. And so making our rhythms sync and understanding actually how they sync, that, you know, these are the same rhythms. We just read them and interpret them differently. That was a really beautiful piece of the process. And I remember at a certain point, Enmar was speaking to the orchestra. We didn't have that much time to get the piece ready, you know. Um, everybody was working hard. And he said, hey, everybody just relax. <laughs> I hear you trying to, you know, I think I, I feel like you're assuming that that guy over there is doing something really different than what you know how to do. But just listen and you'll understand how it's the same thing. You know, it might look a little different, might sound a little different, but it's the same thing. Walk in where it's the same. And that was such a, such a beautiful education um, for me as much as everyone else, because I'm it's the first time in my life that I've had to um, play a duet with um, Bata. Percussion. <laughs> it's very, really different. 
Yeah, there are a lot of places where, where it's, it's really lovely to see the similarities. I'm thinking about the premiere in October, and I watched a bit of the video, and so I know people were applauding. What, however, was their reaction? Did you get some comments from people after the performance? I keep thinking about why there was so much emotion. There was so much emotion in that audience. And everyone I spoke to said, you know, I was, I found myself weeping. And I don't know why. I mean, I think I have some ideas. I think that when we, when we find reflection of ourselves, you know, it's always meaningful. And I think when we know that that reflection is intentional, it's very meaningful. And I think to encounter that in the context Again, of this piece that, you know, we think of as an American icon, an American masterpiece, so familiar um, to hear all of a sudden these things that poke through where we're saying, this is my history. This is your history. This is where this comes from. This is, this is where these things connect. I think that just really shed a, a new light, made people connect with the piece in a different way, hear it in a different way and hear their own stories in it, which is the intent. I think that there are so many places um, where we we aren't given the invitation to find our own stories in music, but they're always there. As I was thinking about all the interesting instrumentation, especially when the Chinese instruments come in about 18 minutes into the piece, it's so, it's kind of a little bit breathtaking, like, wow, now that really caught my attention, not because it was loud or boisterous, but it just was a different sound. And I couldn't help also but think of American in Paris when Gershwin brought home those taxi horns. And I was thinking, oh, he was kind of doing something similar in taking instruments from the place, you know, to really enhance the work. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if that rang true with you at all or not, but it just oh, seemed yeah. to me there was some similarity. No, very much, very much. And I think this, I just keep thinking about how much he would love this because just knowing how how deep he was reaching into you know, what was available to him. But sure, imagine if he had heard those instruments. He would have wanted to do something with those instruments. And he would, if he had had all this percussion at his disposal, he, I think he would have built the piece out to you know to highlight it and to um, let let all of that just really fly. Yeah, because I wrote a Cuban overture too, right? Yeah. Now that I'm, yes. I'm you know, it's yeah. like, oh, this is not so far fetched. Uh -uh. No, no. What do you love most about this new reimagined version? Oh well, hmm, that's a hard question. I love the idea that this just gives new life and um, maybe, you know, invites a whole new generation or generations into the piece. I think it's very appropriate that 100 years down the line, this very young composer from Puerto Rico takes this score and interprets America through his lens through our lens, right? I mean, everything sounds different. That's that's one thing I've been thinking about so much. Just what did it sound like to walk down the street in Gershwin's time? And what does it sound like now? Those are two radically different things, but it's the same street. And I think 
for me, there's something really powerful about letting music um, evolve with the times. You know, I think in classical music, we have such a weird <laughs> relationship, actually, with our notes that we play. You know, because think of any other form of music. People are always picking up a tune and reinterpreting it, reimagining it. And these, these tunes get handed down through the generations. And, you know, you've got a folk song from the 19th century that then becomes a civil rights song in the 1960s and then becomes something else completely in this 21st century. It's normal. But for us to keep playing exactly the same notes exactly the same way for hundreds of years, I mean, I get it. And also, I think there's room there for us to embrace the here and now of the music that we love. You kind of already responded to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What was most memorable for you about that premiere? Really just the energy, really just the joy. It was very, very joyful to witness all these young musicians working really hard. We were all working really hard. And again, you know, well, there's that magic, right, of something being played for the first time. But I think we all had our hearts really deep in it and then to experience the response, because, well, this is sort of a, um, what's the word I can use on the radio? <laughs> this is, this is there's, there's some chutzpah here, right? To take this piece and, and give it a, a, a new existence. And um, Edmar and I, from the beginning, there was no thought of, well, let's do something gimmicky or cool. That wasn't it. It was really, let's dig down. Let's figure out where this piece comes from. Let's go deep into Gershwin's heart and his imagination and his, you know, his scope of vision and, um, you know, invite him to join us here in 2024 and to see that play out in real time and to see this audience respond in such um, a powerful way. Yeah, th that was just, I, that, it was kind of unforgettable. In reimagining Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, what have you discovered about yourself, Lara? That it's possible to have a new relationship with something that you know so well. Do you remember when we spoke about my album, Holes in the Sky? That was some years ago, four years ago, something like that, longer than that. And I remember talking with you about recording was Judy Collins, her song Albatross, that she had been singing for I don't know how many decades at that point. And we had a new arrangement of the piece. And I remember talking about how she came in the studio and I could not, I could not imagine how she could take a step back and engage with this song of her own in a different way after singing it so many times. And yet she, I think she was in her late 70s at that point, she did. The lady comes to the gate Dressed in lavender and leather Looking north to the sea She finds the weather fine And I remember being in that session with her and thinking, this is what I want to do. I want to have this long life in music where I have the ability always to re-engage, you know, reimagine, reinvent, just like have this ongoing evolution with the music that I make. And that's how I felt. That's how I feel with this project. And and it's interesting because I think that now, even when I'm playing with an orchestra, the the Grofet version from 1924, I have a different relationship with this piece. I understand its roots. I understand the America where Gershwin was living. I understand what he was trying to preserve and protect and in terms of this musical kaleidoscope and the diversity of music that he was um 
trying to trying to assimilate and translate and you know give out in a new way um i just think it's several layers deeper i've always loved this piece i've always loved every time i've played it but i think there's just a different part of me now that's engaged in sharing it with audiences Laura Downs with a new reimagined version of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. She commissioned this work from Puerto Rican composer Edmar Colon, and it'll be on her forthcoming release due out next fall, which is called This Land. Thanks to Valerie Kaler. She's our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. <laughs>